Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. What um, phone do you want searches the mind and the heart, 
and I will give each of you as your works deserve. And to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some of you call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay any other burden upon you, only hold fast to what you have until I come. He who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received power from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Thank you, God, for the reading of your word. I ask that the, these words of power will go forth and not return void. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Now let's discuss Thyatira just a little bit so that you know what we're talking about. Thyatira, like all other churches, are located in Asia, Western Asia. Uh, the modern-day city uh, is called um, Akhirsa in modern-day Turkey. And it's about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. So if you've got your maps and you're looking at Pergamum, just go a little bit south and east, and you will see, uh, you will see by Tyre. Now, this, this city is situated in the is the one that's uh, like if you're going toward Greece. So if you have your maps, you can, you can see that. Now, Thyatira was a place of commerce that ran east. So a lot of different nations would converge in this area because they were headed toward the Middle East uh, to sell their goods. And uh, it's well known for its first-class tradesmen. This is the this is the big thing about Thyatira is, is that it had so many trades and it had work, workers' guilds. Um, and they also had white marble quarries that were nearby in the mountains. So a lot of marble came from this area as well and they would, they would export it out. Now, it's the smallest of all the seven cities of the churches, so it really didn't have um, uh, this, the population size that the other cities have. Um, don't want to say it's the least important, but it's, it's the smallest. Now, one of the major Bible people that came from uh, this town is Lydia, which is the name of my wife. <laughs> uh, so in Acts chapter 16 verse 14 you could read the story of Lydia and um, now I don't think the story actually takes place in Thyatira but she is from there and she is the seller of purple right so uh, there was I believe a particular route I'm going to say it's a mandrake or something there was a particular route that was that had a red dye in it and they would use this route to create the dye for um, for their clothing. And of course, it's very expensive because it was handmade. So anything handmade was pain-tasking, and uh, it would cost quite a bit of money. So only the rich people would wear the purple and the scarlet. So you see the kings and the rulers would have that kind of clothing. So the church itself had a good record of faithfulness. I mean, we could see that from the scriptures we just read. Uh, it is growing. It's a growing and thriving church, and they they got plenty of good works. 
Um, and we know from historical records that this city actually sent bishops to some of the uh, very famous historical um, councils, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and the Council of Ephesus in 431. So if they were still sending bishops 400 years after this book was written, then we know that the church existed at least that long and, and potentially even longer. So you can think of Thyatira a little bit as a blue collar town um, or a union town since it was known to have so many trades and guilds. So there were dyers of wool, dyers of linen and, and um, leather and bronze. There were potters and tanners and bakers. So this was a, this was a bustling town full of, of tradesmen. And each industry had its own guild. So we still have some guilds. I don't know if they call them that anymore. But I know there's an actor's guild. Um, the, you know, steel workers, don't they have a guild? You know, it's basically just like a, like a union is how I understand it. So each guild had to acknowledge during this time a certain deity or a certain god. So if I was um, in the, like, dying wool, I would be in the wool dying guild, and I would have a god or goddess that was over that I pray to. So are you seeing the, <laughs> the little bouncing ball here? So because you had to have a job, you had to join the guild. You, and when you join the guild, you have to worship this idol. So you could see where some people, especially Christians, whose only God was Jesus Christ, would have, had, would have an issue with this. Now, when the guild got together, it wasn't just to talk about stock and trade and, and how to improve the product. They would uh, sacrifice an animal to the deity. So, just they would have a priest or priestess there that would be a that would be connected to the god or goddess. They would sacrifice the the animal, and then they would sit down around a table, much like the ones we have here. Maybe it's a long table, and they would cook the meat and eat the meat sacrificed to that idol. Now, everybody like eat at, at, you know, meetings and things like that. So, so they, they ate. However, they would finish off their eating with a bunch of drinking and a lot of fornication. And so those kinds of parties were not the kind of parties that Christians wanted to belong to. Now, you'll see here that there's a separation between the world and between the Christians. And I want to bring that home to all of us today, that we are in the world, but we're not supposed to be of the world, right? So think about these people and think about you today. Uh, in order for you to have a job during this time, or socially, in any way by Tyra, you had to be a craftsman and belong to a guild, period. So what are you going to do? They're, they're kind of in a little bit of a dilemma here. Either I lose my job and I can't support my family, or I just worship this idol and eat the meat. <laughs> um, and it kind of seems easy to just eat the meat, right? Just eat the meat. And this is kind of the point, if you were with us 
uh, when Pastor was teaching about just take the little bit of incense and burn it to the and burn it to Caesar and you'll be fine. You know, it's these little it's these little compromises. It's not sacrifice your kids to this idol or whatnot. It's just these little things that Satan wants us to do. And and that kind of goes back to when Satan was tempting Jesus and he said, Well, why don't you just bow down and worship me? And I'll give you all the bread that you want. You know, it wasn't, he didn't say, like, give me a million dollars or, you know, work for me the next 40 years and then <laughs> I'll give you some bread. Just this simple thing of bowing, just get on your knees and worship me. But you notice Jesus did not do that. I'm telling you tonight that those same compromises are facing us constantly, if not weekly, probably daily that we are all asked to compromise on our jobs and in the society. One of the hardest things for me is I have lesbian and gay friends that work with me, and you all do too, so don't act like you don't. Um, part of me wants to, part of my whole thing is, you don't live a lifestyle that I agree with, so I'm gonna shun you. But then the other part of me says, that's not really what I should do. Like, I should at least ask this person how they're doing. But how far do I go? Do I ask them, well, how's your partner doing? Is that a little bit too far? <laughs> they have to say, yeah, that's, that's a little too far. Well, it may be. Um, and I think that's kind of where they're at today. Where is the line? If I just ate one bite of the meat sacrificed to the idol and not the whole steak, you know, will God forgive me? And I, and I think they, they relied on that too. And as we get into the teaching of Jezebel, she basically said that. Go ahead and eat the meat. God will forgive you. His grace is sufficient. And uh, we, we got to make sure that we're, not, that we're not running over the grace of God. God's grace is sufficient, but we don't want to crucify him afresh. All right. So the chief god of the city was Apollo. And a lot of us know Apollo because of NASA. And they name all the rockets after gods. Uh, the, the, who knows the name of the last rocket they just sent off? Artemis. Yeah, so another, another great goddess. Um now, I do want to tell you something structurally about the book. Remember when I brought the menorah and we were just opening up the book of Revelation? This is actually the fourth candle, which is, in, if you look at a menorah, it has seven branches, okay? The Thyatira is, the, is, if you think of it this way, is the fourth branch. The fourth branch is the one that, it, if you're lighting candles, it's the one that lights all the other ones. It's called the servant candle which is this image of Jesus Christ, the servant lighting all the other, giving light to everyone else. And so Thyatira is curiously also the longest letter in the seven letters. Now, let's go verse by verse and break this down. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. This follows a pattern where Jesus says to the church of blank, write, or to the angel of the church, write, 
And then he gives some kind of characteristic about himself. In this particular pattern, we see that he calls himself the Son of God, and he has eyes of a flame of fire, and his feet are burnished bronze. This, curiously, is the only time that Jesus calls himself the Son of God in the entire book. This is the only time, the first and the last, <laughs> using terminology, the first and the last. And so this is significant because we know from other scriptures that Jesus calls himself the Son of God, but here Jesus is emphasizing the fact that he alone is the Son of God. Remember Thyatira worshipped these other gods. For example, Apollo, who was known as the sun god. And he was often called, get this, the radiant shining one. It sounds a lot like the devil, maybe. Or, you know, because doesn't he like, isn't he a shiny angel or something? So it was not uncommon for the, even the Roman emperors themselves to claim that they were incarnations of Zeus or, or the, the gods of, of Rome. So when Jesus says, I'm the Son of God, he's making a declaration of his deity, that he is above all the gods of the pagan world. Now, Apollo was considered Zeus's son, and that's where we get the parallel here. Apollo was Zeus's son, Jesus is God's son, but Apollo, of course, is not real, and Jesus is. And so he's saying, I'm the Son of God, listen to me. Now, notice what he says. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We're to understand here that his eyes are piercing and that his eyes um, are searching across every one of us in our hearts, the, the places that we can't see. I'm, I'm constantly confronted with this, that, that even I don't know myself, and a lot of us don't know ourselves as well as we should. <laughs> but even the parts that we don't know, God does. And he knows every motivation and every thought of our hearts. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, if you want to write that down, it says that neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to him. And then... In 2 Chronicles 6, 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. So in these dark temples where the fornication and the adultery and all these things would occur, these people thought, Jesus isn't going to see me. <laughs> but when Jesus says, My eyes can pierce through any darkness. There's nothing that is hidden from the eyes of God. And then we get the idea of the flame of fire. Now I want to take us on a little rabbit trail here. Because as I'm reading this and meditating on it, it's hard for me not to see in that flame of fire the pictures of the Holy Spirit. So the very first time we encounter fire in the Bible is actually in judgment. Now if I get this wrong, can you can Call me on it, right? You know, as I'm talking. <laughs> but I think the first time that fire is mentioned is in judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see fire coming down on Mount Carmel when Elijah 
prays to God and the fire comes down and consumes the, the, uh, the altar there. So we see judgment in those images. But we also see fire in the burnt sacrifices, in the sweet-smelling incense that was offered, that the priest would offer to God. So do you see the, the fire in judgment, but also the fire in sacrifice? We see fire in images of God in heavenly visions. For example, Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 4. I looked and behold, a stormy wind, maybe a, a whirlwind or a tornado came from the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it. Fire flashing forth continuously, and in the midst of the fire, it was, as it were, a gleaming metal. This is talking of God. It's as if he sits in this fire, this, and, and he has this fiery image. Then we get to scriptures like in Acts, where it says fire set on each of them, as it looked it, in the appearance of cloven tongues of fire. And then we read in um, 2 Timothy, it says to fan into flame, the gift of God. Do you see the fire in all these? It's different, it's different uses of the, the fire, but yet it's used for that, that way in the Bible. That lets us know that if we don't stop sinning, that judgment is coming. If we don't turn around and change our ways, that judgment is coming. And I think that's what was going on with these these people. God wanted them to know that he sees them. I just thought that was interesting looking at fire throughout the Bible in these different ways. Sometimes it's used as judgment. Sometimes it's used as sacrifice. Sometimes it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But it's very interesting to see that. Now the feet of fine brass. What do you think? Come on. We're talking about feet now. now <laughs> nobody likes that, right? But what do you think the feet meant? Uh, of, of Jesus well it's a sign of authority but when you think of standing it's also a sign of stability and strength so Jesus his feet were like burnished bronze or, or, or um, brass um, and we get those scriptures about feet where things are under his feet because he is now the ruler the uh, uh, he's put everything under his feet. Ephesians chapter 122, he's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over the church. So all things are under the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, a little point here, bronze is made when copper is heated and mixed with tin. So it's actually an alloy. It's two things put together. This creates a stronger metal than copper. And bronze is harder than copper, and it's harder than pure iron, and far more resistant to corrosion. So um, bronze is a heavy harder, heavier metal than just uh, that image made of in, in Daniel chapter 2. Come on, Bible scholars. Iron, mud and iron, or iron mixed with clay. Yeah. So what I just read to you is that that bronze is harder than pure iron. So when you think of that statue, when you get down to those feet that were iron mixed with clay, it's even softer and uh, more, um, what I want to say, it's not as sturdy as 
the bronze, which is very much harder uh, uh, metal. So in, in, this, in this vision, we see that Jesus is not just a ruler over the world, but he's also, he has everything under his feet. <laughs> An old song that says, under his feet, under his feet. I think pastor sings that, doesn't he? <laughs> um, but that also gives us images of Jesus where, where he was on the sea and there the waves were rolling and, and billowing and he just stepped out and uh, was walking on those waves. So he can walk on the waves in our lives too. Amen? All right. Let's look at verse number 19. It says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This, this I know your works is similar to what we just read, where we read about Jesus can see what they're doing. Now we know that Jesus says, I know It's a, um, a deep perception. He says, I know your works. I know your love, your service, your patience, and your spiritual progress. Look at the first thing that's, that's written there. I know your works, your love. Now think about our church. Us to be remembered for. That we had a good choir. We do have a good choir. Megan's great. That we got a good preacher. That, that our church is a loving church. That's right. And that's exactly what Jesus said about them. The very first thing he says is, I know your works. I know you love people. I know you love. And that's what we want Jesus to say about us. But he also says you have faith. Service. servants in your church, people that will wash feet. And it says that um, I know your patient endurance, your, your long suffering, that you, that you really put up with people, that you're not just in the, um, in the ministry just for the money, but you're in it for to help people and love people. And so it, it, all these things are beautiful. There are later works that says are greater than their first. And these words can give us great hope because how many of us started out really good? Many of us cannot say that. Many of us didn't start out so good. <laughs> many of us have delivered, set free, and saved. Your later works can be better than your first. Now, Jesus sees and recognizes that they're they're good works. And this is a very active church. I want to underline, underline. This church is active. So they, you know, when there's something in the community, they're out there doing it. And um, here's um, their activity, though. I want to caution you. Doesn't mean activity doesn't always equal spiritual death. Okay? So increased activity doesn't mean that your church is necessarily growing, you're doing, and sometimes when you are doing, you are growing, but sometimes it could be a cover for not growing at all. 
increased activities can hide terrible sins. And sometimes, like in this verse here, they were doing things, they were busy, but they also had some sin that they did not deal with and they needed to. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus where he said, you did all this, but you left the other undone. I don't want to be one of those. <laughs> I want it all to be taken care of. Now, we get to the point, that was the introduction. Now, in verses 20 through 25, which are the next five verses, we're going to get to the, what we call the rebuke, where Jesus rebukes the church. I'm going to put the microphone down. Do you have a question while I get a drink? Or a comment? I noticed that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, it says, I was like fire Each church heard these specifics. The idea is to think back to the first vision, the first vision of Christ. That's really good. All right, now let's get to the kind of the, kind of the hard part here, and that's the rebuke. All right, everybody ready? These are, the hard, these are the hard words, you know. All right, so look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching, and beguiling my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. All right, so this is loaded. This is loaded with a lot of Old Testament in it. So if you remember your Old Testament history, you got to go back to 1 Kings chapter 16, I believe, uh, where we first hear about Jezebel. Or it's 16, 17, and 18, all those chapters right there. Now, a little bit of history about Jezebel. Um, she was from the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And her father was King Ebal, E-B-A-L. And he was, it's interesting how you're, a lot of times the name would have the name of the God in it. So his name was Ebal, E-B-A-L, and what God did he worship? Baal. <laughs> the name was in it. And Jezebel, what God do you think she worships? Baal. Okay, very good. So um, they worship the, this God, Baal. Now, God has no rivals at all. There's no one beside him. Okay, we can all agree with that. Uh, But um, there is no statement of the sign. I'm just making that up. Um, but in, in, in metaphorical terms, this, this God Baal was a rival to, to Yahweh. Do you see what I'm saying? He was like, if people weren't worshiping him, then they were worshiping Baal, even though Baal is not a god. Okay. So... Um, that means if your dad is the priest of Baal, then what does that make his daughters? Well, they're the priestesses. Right. So she's a priestess and a patroness. So she's providing money for them. You know, you, um, we write grants these days. You know, you write a grant and you get money. <laughs> well, these people would ask for money and they would get it from her. Um, so her major, her major fault was that she led Israel into idolatry and led King Ahab, who's supposed to be a righteous king. All, the, all of Israel's kings were supposed to be righteous, but led him into um, idolatry and, and eventually his death. 
So Ahab married um, Jezebel, just like a lot of kings did, for an alliance in order to benefit from the wealth of the Phoenicians from which she came. However, it proved to be Ahab's and Israel's downfall. The irony is, even though this woman, Jezebel, notice in here she's called a prophetess. Did you all see that? Even though she's called a prophetess, she was actually a murderess of the prophets of the God of Israel. So, so she's really not who, whatever her title says she is. Now, um, <clears throat> it's been suggested, now, you might want to do a little bit more research on this. Um, one of the commentaries, not all of them, but one of them, how this commentator thinks that is because when it says, a right to the angel of the church, that that word angel actually means to the pastor, because actually the letter goes to the pastor of the church and he reads the letter. So that is, you know, I'm not teaching you that, like that's the gospel, but as, as we are reading this book, you may want to know that that is one of the theories. So historically, this may have been one woman. However, we are to understand that Jezebel represents an entire system. So in the book of Revelation, there are actually four women that we encounter. Um, number one, we first of all have to see Jezebel. She's here in chapter two. There is a woman in chapter 12 that is crowned with 12 stars and she has a baby who's representative of Jesus. Then number three, we see another evil woman, the woman that rides the beast. And we're kind of supposed to make a correlation that this Jezebel and the whore that rides the beast are kind of in, not, they're kind of in, in the same, um, they kind of have the same background, if you will. They're in the same, they're parallel, very good. And then finally, we see a, a good lady, and that's the bride. <laughs> We'd like to see the bride, right? So those are the four women in Revelation. And perhaps another theory is that she was a member of the Nicolaitan sect, which also taught, we learned last week, Brother, Brother uh, Witte taught us that there, the Nicolaitans uh, ate sexual immorality, which is something that Jesus calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and beguiling my servants. Notice those verbs. She's calling herself a prophetess. That's the first verb. The second verb is what she's doing. She's teaching. And then the last thing is she's misleading or seducing. So the author here wanted to show us these three things. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, that means that they're tolerating or compromising with this lady's teaching. Now, this is kind of the meat of the story here, is that while she's allowed to teach, um, she is teaching them that it, sexual immorality and eating these meat, this meat sacrificed to idols is acceptable. Um, now, she taught that to have fellowship with the world and fellowship with God was okay. And to boil it down, that word is compromise. And so that's kind of what we were talking about just a few minutes ago. And so while you're, sitting, while you're sitting here, I want you to think about how and if compromise comes into your life. 
We must realize that the sin of the church does not consist of any kind of activity against the Lord, but in its passivity, in its toleration of the enemy in its midst. To tolerate something ultimately means to accept it. And that is, in actual fact, the great guilt of the church of today that's heaping upon itself, and the church of Thyatira, that we sometimes accept things that Jesus may not accept. So we must remember that whenever a true prophetic word comes forth, which urges us to, it will urge us to sanctification, to, to godly living, and a holy life, if that kind of teaching gets moved out of the church, and another kind of teaching gets moved in, then we're in trouble. The spirit of tolerance can move into a church. And look at look around at these other denominations who have who have played a little bit with fire. They've been burnt, and now they're splitting. I'm, I'm thinking about those churches that ordain homosexuals as priests and as uh, as bishops and those kinds of things. But other things as well. I mean, there's all kinds of teaching that comes in. Uh, to the church. There's always this uh, pool for Eastern meditation or mysticism to come into the church and for that to be acceptable. That's not, that's not acceptable either. So tolerance is when you don't like it, but you live with it. Tolerance is you may not like it, but you live with it. Yep. Well, in yep. today's society, we're not only encouraged to teach tolerance, we are expected to teach tolerance and to be tolerant of others and our differences. That's the expectation that we have now. For sure. Exactly. Derek? Yes. Did you by chance look up the meaning of the name Jezebel? Um, I've got it, but go ahead and give us the definition. Well, I was just thinking it was interesting because her name the direct translation of her name means chaste. Mm -hmm. Or virginity. So somebody that's <laughs> teaching all this stuff is standing there every time they're saying her name, mm -hmm. saying she's chaste. Mm -hmm. She's a virgin. She's the, the picture of what we ought to be. And so Satan could transform himself into an angel of right. If you can follow the thinking here, that is, you got to have a job, so you got to be a part of this guild. They do some bad things, but if you, maybe you could tolerate some of these to just keep your job. You see that thinking? And maybe Jezebel said something to that effect. You know what? Just go ahead and do it. God's grace will be sufficient to cover that. Just repent and then do it again. <laughs> That's right. Eric, I kind of see it like modern day. Yes. How many organizations do we know? Like, I'm going to say right now, Taco Bell. Yeah. They're having drag shows for children. Yep. You know, I will yep. not go to Taco Bell. Yep. If I go to Taco Bell, I'm supporting them. That's right. I don't, I'm not going to. Disney World. Right. We all want our kids to have a wonderful experience. Yes. And they can. They do. I, I'm not going to say what companies, maybe I should, I'm not, <laughs> there are many companies that offer
also will pay for women to get an abortion. That's right. That if you, they don't provide that in your state, we'll give you the money. And what you do when you patronize them, when you go to their store, but you see how that's shutting the Christians down too? It's like we have fewer and fewer places where we can go. Um, but you might think, well, is going to Target really a compromise with the world? If you know that 
a certain company, for example, Disney, you know they're on the open about the transgender agenda. You pray about it. So let's pray today. It seems like also taught that the deeds done in the body cannot hurt the soul. So if you did something in terms of sexual immorality, that it would not hurt your soul at all. Um, in other words, it's a live however you want kind of mentality. It's what we call hedonism. Uh, just anything goes. Um, now, here's the thing, is that who, where's the bishop of this church to, to throw her, her out on her ear? Mm. <laughs> where's the council that said, hey, I don't, you know, I heard that lady teach the other day, and it didn't sound like stuff right out of the Bible, you know? <laughs> and then where are the people? You know, if the council's not there, if the, if the pastor's not there, what about the people rising up and saying, look, we're, we're not going to tolerate this? Well, we'll get there in a second, because some people do not tolerate her teaching, and we'll, we'll read about that. Um, look at verse 21. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her immorality. This just reminds us that God always gives us time to repent of our sin, that he gives us ample time. And a lot of times, it's 70 times 7, right? Sometimes it's even more than that. Uh, so I, I just want to thank God for his, his long-suffering. Once again, uh, we think of long-suffering, and we think of a day or two, but when God thinks of long-suffering, it's infinitely beyond anything we can think. The word time here for some of you Greek folks is chronos. There's two different Greek words, chronos and kairos. And this chronos means I gave her time. I gave her for her to repent, and she did not. The word metanoia is the Greek word for repent. That It's meta, not Facebook, but meta. <laughs> and that means um, after, and the noia means to think. So it means to think differently after. In other words, to have considered and then to make a change. So he gave her time to make this change in her life, but she never did. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I want you to write this chapter down because this, this is important. Paul says, for I fear, he's writing to the Corinthian church. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 20 through 21. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I might find you not as I wish. And that you might find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling and jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God might humble me before you. And I might have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality, and the sensuality that they have practiced. This... These are strong words from Paul, and it seems to me here that he was saying, when I come to you next time, if you've not repented, he says, God's going to humble me before you, and I might just cry the entire service and weep over your sin. Can you imagine a pastor getting up to preach and then just breaking down and crying the entire time? That's what Paul is saying here. To, to mourn over the, the many of those who have sinned earlier and who have not repented. And I think about mourning over 
mourning over sin, mourning over your own sin, but over those of others as well. fair to her, or he didn't give her time to repent, it says here that he did give her time. So we can't say, ah, he didn't really give her a fair chance, but he did. It will not be, um, we will not be able to say on judgment day that God did not give us time to repent. We will be judged for every idle or careless word or empty word that we speak. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we'll be judged for the good and bad things that we've done in our bodies. So we need to be very careful about what we say and the things that we do. Look at verse 22. I will cast her into a sick bed. Now we think of the bed as being the place of immorality for this, this woman, Jezebel. And it's very interesting to me that she's not only teaching the immorality, but she's the adulteress herself. And it says, those committing adultery with her I will cast them into great tribulation. So at this point, we thought she's just teaching it to others, but really it was, she's the adulteress. She's the one that's having the um, illicit act with others, which is very, that's disturbing. So then it says, unless they repent of her works, once again, God gives her time to repent. Now, notice here, says, unless they repent of her works. He's talking about those committing adultery with her. They, it's very clear in the Greek, it says her works, not their works. That is very interesting to me. Do you, do you see that in verse 22? Unless dead. Now, we have to ask ourselves, who are the children of Jezebel? Her followers. Who, yeah. Did you say something, Pam? The ones that she taught. The ones that she taught, exactly. Not Maybe not literal children, but perhaps, but definitely her spiritual followers. And it says that he will strike them dead. Now think about this. These are children born out of a, a, adultery. And wouldn't you think that they were kind of an evil seed? You know? So um, it's interesting that God is trying to, in this in this since get rid of the evil seed that was created with this woman of sin. Um, then finally, it says the churches will know. Look at verse um, 23. I will strike your children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and hearts and I will give to each of you the works that you deserve. This is the second time he uses the word, I know. The first time was in, I think, verse 19. I know your works. Remember, that Greek word was oida. I can perceive what you're doing. This word is gnosko, which means um, to have an intimate knowledge of. So, whereas oida means, sometimes we, have you ever been talking to somebody and say, I see what you mean? We're not really seeing what they mean. But it's kind of that idea of oido, I perceive your works. But gnosko um, is a knowledge that is by learning or experience, knower's perception. So what I'm trying to say with all that is gnosko is a little bit of a deeper, more 
uh, intimate knowing between two people. It's the, it's the same word used in Genesis uh, with Adam and Eve. And then finally it says, the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. And we think about those Old Testament verses that say, search me, God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. We need to say that prayer every day when we get up. Search me, O oh God. Every day we go to sleep, search me, O oh God, and try me and know my heart. Remember, uh, the book of Jeremiah says nobody can know the heart of man. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Only God can know the heart. And then, then the other scripture is, I, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And then finally, it says here that I will pay, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Remember, every deed that you do has a payment. It may not be a punishment, but it will definitely be a payment. <laughs> and sometimes the payment could be a judgment or it could be a reward. And I would rather have rewards. Reward consequence. A reward or consequence. And let's look at verse 24. But to the rest of you. Now this is where I was saying not everybody followed her teaching. I was saying, where's the pastor? Where's the council? Where's the where's the congregation? Well, there were some of the congregation. And remember, this isn't just a necessarily a person, but this is a spirit as well. And so it says, I will repay each of you, okay, and the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, um, who have not learned, now this, now focus back in with me on this one, who have not learned the deep things, what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, remember we just talked about the two Greek words, one is oida and one is gnosko, the two ways of knowing. When your Bible says, who have not learned, that is actually the word gnosko. You have not learned the teaching of Satan. Now, let's look and think about, what do you think the deep things of Satan are? Now, should we even be thinking about that? <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't. Yeah, right. There's also also the idea of uh, becoming acquainted with and knowing on a, a deeper level. Yes. Which is one reason that words become the Jewish idiom for intercourse. Ah, okay. And I like what you said, Bill. You said level, and I, that's what came to my mind when I was reading this. You. Um, you have not learned the deep things of Satan. In other words, there must be another level to, to Satan. <laughs> and you don't want to go to that level. Now, I do want to read you how the Greek would, um, would say this. As they say. So it's almost like it's a, maybe a saying, the deep things of Satan. Um, maybe it's you know, like a catchphrase that they may have used during that time. Then it says, to you I say, I did not lay on you any other, other burden. The Greek is interesting here too, because it says, the Greek says, I do not cast upon you any other weight. 
Now remember, we've just heard that word, I will cast you into a sickbed. I will throw you into a sickbed. And then here it says, I will not cast upon you any other burden. So the author, the writer of, the, the, of Revelation is, is giving a little bit of weight to these words. And then finally it says, um, hold on fast or hold on carefully and faithfully to what you have until I come. This is a, this is a passage about the rapture of the church. <laughs> hold on fast what you have. What? Until I come. Endure to the end. It's the, the message of, of Jesus. So we are to, he's not talking to the people who have already given in to Jezebel. He's talking to the people who, the rest of you, that's what the, the verse says, the rest of you in Thyatira who have not, uh, you know, obeyed her teaching, who have not learned the deep things of Satan. You are to hold fast until I come. Now, we get to the good part, and that's the promise. Everybody ready for the promise? Yes. Yeah. All right. Now, um, it, I need to give you a structural note. The Spirit says to the churches, before the promise of reward, and then it would give you a promise. I will give you a white stone. I'll give you a new name. Here is the first time that we see a subtle change. Now, people that really study the word, these things really excite you. When you see these little changes that, that are really cool. Here's the first time we see a subtle, tiny little change where this is reversed. And it will remain reversed for the following three churches. Though this is a small change, it's these little changes that make the book remarkable. So what we're going to see here is... We're going to get the promise of reward first, and then at the end, he will say, to those who have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this goes back to what I was talking about with the menorah. Because this is the middle candle, the author of this book changed things a little bit. And then the other three churches will follow the changes that the middle candle made. Does that kind of make sense? All right. So... In verse 26, it says, To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now, here the word for conquer is Nikon. Anybody heard of Nike? We all have, okay? Now, Nike is actually a Greek goddess, and she's the goddess of victory, okay? So, but it the Greek word comes from the Greek goddess. So, when it says the one who conquers, it's the Greek word Nikon. The one who, Nike, the one who conquers. And he keeps my words until the end. To him, keeping until the end the works of me. Let me read that one more time. I know it sounds backwards because it is a little bit. But in the Greek, it literally says, And the one overcoming and keeping until the end the works of me. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out to you is because the Greeks would put words of most importance first. So what do you think is most important here? Overcoming and keeping his works. And, yes, overcoming. And then it says, until the end. So, um, 
how you begin and how you end matters. I want to leave you with that. It says, the, the one who conquers, I will give authority. The ones overcoming and keeping until the end, those are the ones that will receive the reward. Remember that their later works were better than their first, and maybe that will be true for us tonight. Verse 27, and he will rule with the rod of iron. That, that really doesn't say rule. It does in our English, but in the Greek it says um, he will shepherd them. It's a lot prettier, a lot softer, I think. He will shepherd them with the rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken up in pieces. And even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. Now, who is the morning star? The bright morning star, Revelation 22, 16. The overcomer will inherit the glory of the Messiah. The, the star is the glory of the, of the heavens. But the star here, those who overcome will receive the glory. Talking to the church. Jesus. He's the one. He's saying, I'm the one with the eyes and the, and the feet. But who are we supposed to hear? Spirit. But whose words are they? There you go. I love that beautiful mix there of it, it's the words of God we're hearing, but it's it's the spirit that we're supposed to um, it's the spirit's words that we hear. So he who has an ear, let him hear. Um, who all has an ear in here? <laughs> all of us. <laughs> But are you supposed to hear or to hear? hear? Yes. All right. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for opening up the words of life to us. God, thank you for the worship time that we've had tonight. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will search my heart and try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me, O oh God. Lord, that you would deliver me of those things. Deliver us, Lord from our compromises and our tolerances of, of wicked God. And may we realize that calling out wickedness and exposing things to light is sometimes the way of love and the way that we're supposed to be in this world. Help us, God, to find our way in this world as we follow you, as you are the length to our feet and the light to our path, as we read your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.